to the Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. I am Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Nicholas Jarecki. Uh, Nicholas Jarecki, he is the writer and director of Arbitrage, uh, starring Richard Gere, came out in, was that 2013? Yo, 2012, 2013. 2012-2013. Uh, very good. It's on Showtime now if you want to check that out. Uh, you wrote The Informers, and you're the writer and director of uh, a new movie about the opioid epidemic uh, called Crisis, and that's what we are here to discuss today. Out on Blu-ray and DVD this week. Uh, you can check it You can check it out on physical media if, you don't, if you're not into the whole streaming thing. Um, uh, but I, I, I was very interested in this movie because, in part because I used to edit in a, in a past life, I used to edit a writer who was very into covering the whole uh, opioid crisis. He was very into, uh, you know, the the rise of fentanyl and all that. Um, and all of this is discussed here. I mean, I think it's an under-discussed topic. You know, you, we've had in the last... Uh, in in the 12 month period ending in September 2020, uh, there were 87,000 plus drug overdoses. Most of those opioids. You know, that's that's more. That's almost twice as many uh, Americans who, as were killed in Vietnam. Right. The the opioid epidemic has cost billions in medical care, lost productivity, et cetera, et cetera. But it's it's kind of a hard topic to make a movie about, right? Well, first of all, Sonny, thank you so much for having me here. Um, I'm I'm a fan of your writing, and. Um, by the way, I just have to ask a question. This may be a little bit off topic, but Sonny Bunch, is that a real name? It is. It is a real name. It is a uh, a family nickname. Uh, so it's it's not technically what's on my birth certificate, but it okay, is. OK, because uh, I've heard is. Sonny Bunch in other contexts, you know, <laughs> uh, so I was wondering uh, if it was a nom de guerre. Hopefully they're positive, mostly. Yes, absolutely. Um, and uh, uh, well, so was it a hard movie to make uh, a story about. Um, well, I thought, you know, it's it's the perfect thing for one of these multi-plot treatments, or I guess some people now refer to them as hyperlink cinema, although I'm not sure I love that description. Um, but, you know, there's a tradition in, uh, in, in cinema that I think, you know, not, not enough people talk about sort of started with Robert Altman, um, you know, where he was, he, he really pioneered or, or, or made big this idea of the multiple narrative cinema. And oftentimes those films will hang out on a particular topic. You saw it in Nashville, um, you know, and he would do later, you know, the player with Hollywood or Pret-a-Porter, the fashion industry, what, whatever, what have you. And then the wonderful stories of Raymond Carver that he did in Shortcuts. Um, and so I like that type of cinema. And, and, you know, Soderbergh had done it wonderfully with Traffic, but then in Ritu also 21 Grams, Amoris Peros, mm-hmm. Babel, right? And so this was a style of cinema that was very popular in the 90s and 2000s. And then it kind of went away. Um, and, you know, I think it was somewhat supplanted by television because people are used to the multi-narrative threads in television. So, but I felt like, hey, it's time to bring this back because audiences always enjoyed those films. Um, you know, there's very few of them that didn't catch. Um, and uh, and I, but, but you know, you've got to have a subject that, that merits it. So there's always this dance as a creator between, well, is it the form or is it the content? Because a movie's kind of both, right? What you love about a thriller maybe is the story, but maybe it's also like how the thriller works and, you know, get you on the edge of your seat, twist you over here, you know? So, so it's, it's a, it's a dance, but you know, I had personal experience with the opioid topic. I had lost a a good friend to opioid abuse. He died, um, started with pills, went into heroin. And, um, and so, and I knew other people that had struggled with it. Um, so I, I, you know, wanted to make some sense of it personally, but I also thought it would be 
uh, ripe for cinematic exploration. And indeed, I think it, it was. Um, so, but we said, okay, well, how are we going to do it? So we got to look at it from three angles, uh, law enforcement, um, which is, you know, the character that, uh, Army Hammer plays and, uh, the Michelle Rodriguez storyline. Um, we want to look at a user, um, and, and, and what happens to her. That's Evangeline Lilly playing an architect who's recovering addict. Um, and then we want to look at production. Um, and and uh, how these drugs come to be on the pharmaceutical side and where Gary Oldman plays a university researcher um, working for Big Pharma and a kind of whistleblower story. Um, and, and so, you know, all these stories came to be from the research that I did. I'm, I'm very research heavy as a filmmaker. Um, I love it. I like getting in with the real people, hearing their stories. Pretty much everything in this movie happened. Um, so it's just a question of, you know, did I change it or did I put it through a little prism or move details around? Um, but it's very true to life. Um, and so I, I thought, you know, this really fit the, the, the subject matter well. And so I didn't think it was too difficult to fashion, um, you know, a story, whether or not I did it well. I guess that's up to you. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I want to talk a little bit about the research here, because, I mean, it does it feels like, again, a, a very deeply researched film. There there was there without being kind of didactic and, and pedantic about it, you know, just just rattling off information or stats. Right. It feels it feels nar- natural to the narrative. Um, but I, I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, your research process. I mean, when, when you were sitting down for interviews with people, do you just like call them up and say, hey, I'm directing this movie about opioids can you can you spare 20 minutes to talk to me i mean how does that how does that all work i know how it works for a reporter uh but I, i'm curious how it works for a a filmmaker well there's no um there's no set path you know it's um every time you kind of start over and you go like gee what now what uh with this i had you know i had the idea and um at the time actually it's interesting genesis i thought i was having a hearing problem uh, so I went to see, uh, my mother recommended her audiologist here at UCLA, Dr. Ishiyama. And I went to see him and we, t- I thought I had tinnitus. He said, no, you're just having a nervous breakdown. There's nothing wrong with your ears. <laughs> so, uh, but we got to talking. He said, well, what are you working on? I said, well, I'm working on this thing about opioids. And he said, oh, you know, I actually have a lot of experience with that because, um, opioid abuse will cause hearing loss and people will become so addicted to opioids that they will get, you know, massive hearing damage. Maybe it's from the the other, uh, you know, what the pain pills are cut with. The uh, I can't remember if it's ibuprofen or whatever. You take too much, it can do bad stuff to you, to your liver and other things. Um, but he said, you know, so I'll have people come in to see me and they, they've lost hearing and they've got tinnitus killing them. You know, they go to sleep and wake up and they have so much pain, but they're so busy getting high that they push this to the side, push this to the side. When they finally come to see me, they're half deaf. Sometimes I can't even restore their hearing, right? So I thought, oh, my God, this is fascinating. He said, you know, you should really read this series of articles in the Los Angeles Times. They did a wonderful expose on Big Pharma. So I went and read uh, Ishiyama. In fact, I modeled the character after Dr. Ishiyama in the film, who was Gary Oldman's friend in the movie. That's an homage to him. He's listening. Um, and, uh, and, and, and so I started to read the L.A. Times. And, and there was, a, you know, a great, great series of articles, really top journalism um, and they have gone into some of the pharmaceutical companies and un- tried to understand what did they know about the dangers of these drugs, uh, the, the, their potential to create dependence, uh, oxycodone-based time-release medications that they made or had patents on. Um, and, and, and did they share all of that information with the public? And did they you know, try to move things around or get around the FDA? There, some of the companies are on trial for this as we speak, although I'm skeptical much will happen to them. 
but so I read, so then I called the reporter, I called Lisa Girion. And I said, you know, it's Nick Turecki and I'm, 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 I want to do this movie. She had seen Arbitrage, my previous film with Richard Gere and liked it. And she said, okay, well, let's just, let's go meet at the coffee shop. And so we had a series of meetings and we really hit it off. And she said, you know, I want to see, I want to see a movie about this. I want to see, this is a, it is, as you said earlier, Sonny, it's a topic that doesn't get enough attention, even as much as it was on the front page at that time, you know, it was on the front page for the New York Times or the LA Times, the, the elite, the, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. it, you know, it wasn't the broad public, I don't think had, or even today has an understanding of how some of these things began in the lab or the boardroom. Um, and so, uh, so, so then she said, I said, okay, well, where am I going to go? She said, well, I got the guy for you. You got to meet, you know, the guy from my articles, Steve Opperman, who was, he was the Los Angeles sheriff who ran the undercover prescription narcotics task force with the DEA. And he had just retired a year earlier. So it was wonderful. I got to talk to him without any of the departmental blah, 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 blah. And so Steve and I just started meeting and he's a great, crazy guy. He'd come over, he'd bring a suitcase full of guns. He's a gun nut and loves to go hunting and was, you know, and, and he's cool. He's like six foot six, half Asian, half, you know, something else like uh, Opperman. I thought he was Jewish. Um, but, uh, 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 so, um, one, one of my people, uh, but the, uh, he, he started to share with me, you know, all these cases, right? Everything in the film, the cartels, the Armenians, I think it's all real. It's all just out of Steve's playbook. And so he would, you know, there was a real Minas, a real Armin, and he had set all these guys up the thing. They come in and they hold up a dog x-ray to get pain pills in the movie, in the scene at their fake clinic that Mm -hmm. came from Steve. He had said, I want you to go into that doctor, take a dog x-ray, see how far you could push him. So um, so he was a wonderful partner. He even came on set then and I had him, uh, you know, coach the actors and stuff. And um, and so little by little, you know, then I happen to know people in the pharma world. So, um, you know, a good friend of mine runs a animal testing company, biotechnology company. Um, and so she let me in the labs and then all the science, you know, all those mouse cages, everything real, real, real. We just copied the designs. We made our own designs. She reviewed the science. So, uh, so I had these wonderful advisors, you know, and, um, and that I think gave the tableau, you know, both Billy Friedkin and Michael Mann and Catherine Bigelow, I'm fans of all those directors and they always go and get the consultants and get the research and they make those people their friends. They live with them. They probably love them more than the movies, you know? And so I, I feel like you get that lived in feel um, or you have a higher chance at least of getting it, uh, you know, when you, when you really take the time to do that. So, so and I enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it, again, it feels, it feels very lived in and, and real when you're watching it. it. It helps that you have one of the best casts that I've seen in recent memory here. I mean, you've got Gary Oldman, uh, uh, Michelle Rodriguez, Evangeline Lilly, um, uh, who, who else? Uh, I mean, Army Hammer, we'll come back to him in a minute. Uh, uh, but the, the, it's just a, it's just a Greg killer Kinnear, lineup. Luke Evans, Greg Kinnear, Brian right? Yeah. Ferris, Martin Donovan for the yeah. Hal Hartley fans on the audience. Um, exactly. You know, exactly. I mean, it's it's a killer Cody, cast. Yeah. So, I mean, did you? I I I am I'm always curious how uh, how directors go about building a cast, and with one this stacked, I mean, is it is it just a function of getting the script out there, and they 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 love it and they want to sign on? I mean, I I am I am I find the casting process to be about as interesting as anything else in the world of making movies. Well, it's a dark art, um, and but but you know, because you always feel a little bit. You know, on the one hand, you're like bringing people something cool and exciting. And on the other hand, you're like, 
almost like a rug merchant where you're like, hey, I, I got my movie for you. If you, if you sign on, I can get $100,000 from Germany. And, you know, so there it's 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 madness because the the financing entities drive you crazy with how famous is this person? How What's their foreign value in Lithuania? Mm-hmm. You know, and you're like, hey, I'm just trying to make a movie and get the right person. Right. So with this movie, though, I had a real stroke of luck, which is. Um, the first person I gave this script to was Gary Oldman. And I had met Gary, had another project that was writing a historical epic thriller um, about early terrorism in America. And so I had met Gary uh, for that right around the time of Darkest Hour. Um, he'd been at a cocktail party at the Chateau Marmont celebrating the, the release. And his agent, whom I knew, you know, he said, well, hey, you want to meet Gary? Why don't you come by and say hello? And so I did. And, and, and I, we were talking about this other project at the time. And um, and he was so kind. He said he, he he liked arbitrage, and he said, you know, he said uh, he said, well, uh, this sounds very interesting, a fascinating character. Thank you for the opportunity to be considered. That's <laughs> what this is, Gary Oldman. This is, yeah. you know, he's pretty good, you know. Yeah. But actually, it wasn't an act. He's just he has a certain kindness to him and a certain respect, you know, that I'm I'm a junior classman, three layers below. But he didn't never treated me that way at all. Um, so. So he then, so we were talking about that work, you know, that was very hard to get going. I need a lot of money. Anyway, I wrote this in about six months. I had another friend got in trouble and it felt like the right time. Uh, so then I gave him the script and he right away said, you know, okay, you know what? We want to do the other one. Let's do this now. This is urgent. I know about drug addiction. I've, you know, I have a history with, you know, uh, my own friends and family, whatever. Um, this people need this, you know, because it's hitting everywhere. It's hit like category five and it's, you know, it's crossing over and people need to understand that. So let's do it. I'll come in as a producer, use my name and go get the money and get the rest of the people. And so, uh, you know, so, and that was something, you know, in a way similar that I had had a similar thing with Al Pacino originally, and then with Richard Gere in arbitrage. So I have some type of, or at least I have up to this point had some type of appeal with these elder statesmen genius actors uh i don't know maybe it's my charm might be wearing thin you never know but um uh but but so that's sort of how it then unfolded and then i, I eventually lily i'd always admired from lost i didn't know her but i knew she had incredible emotional range because she played 150 episodes of you know okay the sea monster ate your baby or you know what <laughs> right. uh, you just found out you, your boyfriend cheated on his taxes like anything that could happen happened and lost so therefore, I knew she had the range to play any kind of emotion. And and so she read the script and she she very quickly took to it. Um, and then the, re- you know, Army, I said the script. Uh, I had I had known him a little bit, had met him a few times in Hollywood before. Um, and so we were kind of friendly um, and he came in right away. And then the rest of the cast. Now, at this point, I said, OK, well, I got to get other great people in the movie. I don't have any more money. I mean, I didn't pay the leads very much, but then we really had nothing left. So so then I just said, now I just got to start calling my friends. So I called Michelle Rodriguez. I called Lily Depp. I called Greg Kinnear. You know, th- these are friends that I've built up over the years and Veronica Ferris and Cuddy. And I just said, listen, I'm doing this movie in Canada. It's an important topic. I think there's some good material here. I have no money for you. And you have to come and stay in a two-star hotel where it's freezing. <laughs> what do you think? And pretty much to a man or a woman, everybody was like, I'll be there. What time do you need me? You yeah. know, and that was wonderful to have that support. And then there were some new people that joined that I didn't know that were just incredible actors. Um, Indira Varma, um, whom I'd love from Game of Thrones, Martin Donovan, as I said, and Luke Evans, 
who really turned out to be this wonderful, uh, wonderful guy and, and such a big supporter of the film through thick and thin. Um, and, uh, and, you know, he's, he's, he's such a great actor and he, he really gave along with Veronica Ferris, to my opinion, some dimension to the pharmaceutical executive role. Um, and, and that was it. And, and, and off we went. And I mean, we had many, many challenges along the way. This was extraordinarily difficult production. Um, you know, cause I thought arbitrage, we, you know, we had had so much fun and this certainly was a lot of fun as well. But uh, but I didn't, you know, I, there were a whole new series of elements that I didn't really fully understand the ramifications, such as shooting in Canada in February in Montreal, where the <laughs> average temperature is minus 30. Yeah. And the first day we were out there, lenses froze, uh, you know, we're die. I did my feet wrong. I mean, a frostbite. Um, we had uh, two actors got sick. We had to close the movie twice for a week at a time. Insurance. God bless Chubb Insurance. They paid millions of dollars of insurance clubs. I mean, then, okay, now we're finishing the movie. Now we get COVID, you know? Now the movie can't come out. The movie's been done for 10 months. We wanted, we thought yeah. it was such an urgent public health topic. And then in addition, we can't bring the movie out. You know, who cares about drug addicts? You know, what, who cares about those people? With people yeah. dying of COVID, what am I gonna spare some time for uh you know, but I mean, that the, that's the problem. There's always so many harms in this country that, you know, where can you put the energy? So so but look, in the end, it all worked out and we'll get into that as well. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, but definitely some challenges. Yeah, I mean, I like you. You you mentioned just very briefly. You know, we can get hundred uh, k from Germany from this, and I, I, it was very interesting when I talked. I've t I've talked to a, a casting director before on the show, and and the idea of building a budget from the cast that you you can get and can kind of pre-sale uh, overseas, et cetera, et cetera, is is super interesting to me. I like I I, I don't I, I don't know why, because it it's not on the screen, right? Except it does kind of wind up on the screen because the bigger cast you can get, the more you can sell it for, the more money you get, the better it looks on screen. Um, yes. So so yeah, so I, I, I like if it if there's any way you can just provide some insight into that that world of uh, foreign sales, I mean, I'm I'm always uh, again I'm always interested in this. Well, it's a world that's dying, um, you know, and it was kind of a cool as 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 weird and 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 difficult as it can be. There was something very cool about it, which is it was pretty democratic, um, in the sense that you know how do you make a film. Right. Let's say that you, Sonny Bunch, decide you want to direct a movie. Uh, how are you going to get that done? Mm -hmm. I mean, do you have ten million dollars there in your in your under your desk? No, you know most don't. So uh, so you got to go get it. So how do you get it? Well, under the original old studio system, you would go to Hollywood and you would go meet with Louis B. Mayer or whoever you would go meet with. You know Nick Shank and uh, you heard my movie. What do you think? And they go uh, no. Okay, and then if you got five no's, bye-bye, no movie, right? Yeah. And then also, how do you get on as a director, right? Because I also wrote a book called Breaking In, How 20 Film Directors Got Their Start, where I myself wanted to become a director. How do you become a director? So I went and interviewed 20 great directors about how they did that. Um, and so, so that's the other thing is how do you break in as a filmmaker into the studio system? Pretty much impossible, right? You would have to have someone touch you and say, Yes, I bring him in. So you're dealing in a way with a sinecure, um, you know, and that is not democratic. Uh, it's unfortunate, right? And that's why a lot of voices weren't represented or weren't heard, you know, until now there's a push for diversity and inclusion. I've been in the Directors Guild for now, I think, 10 years. 
and you know this is something we've been working on for years. Uh, Paris Barkley, especially the head of the DGA, pushing you know minority directors, women directors, trying to equalize where we were three three years ago when we had six percent of features being made by women. It's ridiculous. Um, so, uh, but 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 this you know has not been the case historically, right? So so what was cool about the foreign sales model was now it was okay, you don't have to get a studio to put a stamp on you to make your movie. Um, you can go and put together a, a cast. And if you can get, you know, and there's all levels of cast. You could either get Tom Cruise, you know, as Paul Thomas Anderson did. Uh, I think that was in India. I can't remember from Magnolia or maybe not. Uh, you know, or you could get, you know, one of the filmmakers in my book told me it was a big day when they got Michael Ironside back in 1993. <laughs> Um, because he was worth $300,000 in Germany or whatever. Yeah. But the idea is there's all these distributors all over the world, Mr. Germany, Mr. France, Mr. Spain. And, and you could, if you, you, you put together a package, so you, you write a screenplay or you get a screenplay, uh, you get a director or you are the director, um, and then you get a cast. Now, if you can, how do you get the cast? We'll get to that in a second. But if you can get a cast, then you can go to these Mr. Foreigns and you can say, here's what I got. What will you give me for this package? And there's three or four of them. And they're, they bid because they need product. Mm -hmm. And, it, you know, you need to have a certain level of cast. You can't do it with Nick Drake yeah. and Sonny Bunch starring it. We're not going to make it, you know. But but you sadly, also don't need sadly. crews. You know, maybe you could do it with, you know, uh, someone else, right? So uh, someone lesser known. So so if then essentially you could get a certain amount of foreign financing and then you would – get a tax credit, which is an automatic thing you can get from a government depending on where you shoot, right? Spend a dollar, we'll give you back 25 cents. Okay, that's a piece of my financing, extremely valuable. And then now you have to go out and raise a little bit of money for, you know, against the United States. But you can, but, but you have the other pieces, you have a cast, you have foreign sales, you have a tax credit, raising the local money, not that hard now, you know, because you already put everything else together. So what it did was there was a democratic nature to it could you get the cast right and then how do you get the cast well this was always a bit tricky because is it merit or is it charm mm. or is it social standing within the hollywood system you definitely need to play the game you need to get into the hollywood agency system and how do i get this agent to give the script to their client because these movie stars are like hidden you can never find these people you don't have their telephone number sure. they have no way to reach them but you know ultimately if you have a good screenplay, that seems to be recognized, right? And and because I've had screenplays that are good, and then I've had screenplays that aren't. It doesn't matter what my name is. If the screenplay wasn't good, it it wasn't as easily recognized. And so, uh, you know, so if you can get a good script, and if you have some promise as a director, you get some short film or something, and if you can kind of understand how this system works, you really could make a movie, you know. And you could get, and you had a great freedom in that system because. You were assembling the financing yourself. So I've had final cut on every single one of my movies. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't know any very, very few directors have that. Right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, now that system is in collapse, which is which really is a shame because of the rise of streamers, Netflix, you know, they are uh, dominating now the content in all those foreign territories. So as a result, the foreign independent companies don't have money to, like that to give to pre-buys unless it's some like crazy cast, you know, knives out. Uh, and and so so it really becomes challenging. And 
I'm not sure there is an, ind an independent finance model through foreign sales at this point that is that's financially bankable, where I feel comfortable going to an investor and saying, I'm going to get you your money back. Right. Because mm -hmm. all my films have have done well so far, you know, and but but, you, you know, you, people believing in you, you don't want them to get hurt. Um, and, you know, I also put my own money into these films. So so it's tough now. I don't know what I know. This is a much different peg of the conversation than we were originally. Well, on. No, I, I really I really do think it's uh, uh, super interesting. I uh, the, we, we try to talk about the business of Hollywood and filmmaking on this uh, show quite a bit. So I, I like to get that that side of things. Um, I, I you know, with with the movie kind of hitting as covid hits, as theaters shut down, you know, as as the world of film distribution itself kind of radically changes. Um, I, I, I'm just kind of curious how how you guys approached it. You know, y y did you sit on it for a while? Were you like, OK, theaters are going to come back. We're going to we're going to be able to get this in theaters. What was that whole process like? So we really this was this was pretty wild. We we I was finishing up the movie and I basically had I had locked the picture and I had done most of the sound work and I'm still doing the color. Um, and I was like sitting in these theaters because, you know, we shot this movie on 35 millimeter and, and mixed it in Dolby on these big stages. And, you know, it's gorgeous. Like if you see a print of this movie projected it, you know, or a DCP, like it really looks terrific. Um, the cinematographer was great. We shot an anamorphic. Uh, and and so uh, Nicolas Bolduc was, was won every Canadian cinematography award. So um, so there I was, you know, puttering away in my color theater or whatever, like and and so we were starting to screen the movie for because we didn't we never pre-sold the U.S. Typically, you try to keep that and sell that because that could be your profit center, mm -hmm. you know, and, and also it's hard to pre-sell unless you have, you know, Cruz or Pitt or whatever, Brad Pitt. Um, uh, so, um, so we were setting up all these screens for, for releasing companies, you know, to see who we want to work with and, uh, and who want to work with us. And, and then they were like, oh, uh, they can't make it. There's like a virus going around or, you know, anyway, before we knew it, everything was closing, everything was shutting. And I had, I had gone and made at Deluxe Lab, I had like a stack of DCPs <laughs> that we were like getting out to the screening rooms, getting to the yeah. theaters. I'm like, well, I just gave the guy the DC. What do you mean it's a quick, you know? And then no, 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 no. So then it was, okay, wow, the whole world exploded. And then I couldn't even finish the picture now because all the labs are closed. So uh, then we basically pressed pause for about two months and Finally, they said, OK, well, now everybody's ready to buy again. So they they're going to look on uh, their laptop or whatever. So let's send links. And oh, I mean, that was yeah. just terrible. Right. Because, you know, there's a completely different experience when you show somebody a movie in theater with with people or whatever. than you know, if they're watching it on their iPhone for all I know. Right. So but, you know, look, we accept that. And that's that's the way it was. Um, so we did the screenings and we ultimately found a distributor um, that we liked, Quiver, um, small distributor. I knew those guys. Um, but I, what I liked about it was, you know, that going with them gave me a good deal of control. Um, every director likes control um, and a good financial deal. Uh, but because we wanted to do some theatrical release and we we had committed that to our international partners we had pre-sold the movie to universal and warner brothers were the main partners mm -hmm. they had most of the territories of the world um so they we told them we're going to do a theatrical movie you know and that helps with the press profile of a film it's just treated differently than if it's a straight sure. to video yeah. 
release, you know. Uh, so, but, you know, you got to go out there and do a few hundred theaters, right? So this was very difficult in the pandemic. So we had, we did have to wait and wait and wait and keep figuring out when is that going to be a reality. And I think we went right at the start now that we're seeing theaters reopen. And I actually think it worked out quite nicely for us theatrically. Um, I wish we could have gone two weeks later, but whatever. Uh, you know, so so we did that. But at the same time, we said, OK, well, I said, look, we got to do a day and date. You know, this so this was a model that I had done with arbitrage. And we really, uh, you know, I don't want to say we were the first, but we are to this date. Arbitrage holds the record as the highest grossing independent film of all time to ever be released day and date. Um, and so so I knew from my experience doing that, that there was a theatrical experience and a home video uh, experience audience and that they they did not it, it didn't upset them to serve one and serve the other. Yeah. When you say highest grossing, do you mean uh, combined between uh, VOD and and uh, box office? Yes. Yes. OK. Uh, yes. So we did with arbitrage and this is in 20, 2012, 2013. We did uh, we did about eight million on 200 screens and then we did another 14 or 15 million on the US VOD. Mm -hmm. um, and so for an indie, that is still the record yeah. um, as far as I know. Yeah. Uh, but um, uh, so, so I knew that that was, you know, it, it could work. And I thought, especially in the pandemic, it would work. Use the theatrical to generate and drive the press awareness, uh, ride that into the VOD. I mean, this is people have become more aware of this. This is not, you know, now it's not rocket science the way it was back then. Um, but, you know, look, it worked. Um, so we opened up 216 screens. Uh, wherever we could and for the pandemic we did great we did 900 a screen we were the number two highest grossing film per screen and the highest grossing film in limited release um and and we held for a few weeks um and we made some money there i mean look we made half a million dollars uh, with arbitrage the same number of screens i made eight million dollars 10 years ago yeah so obviously the pandemic was a big hit you know, to yeah. the revenues. But but then on VOD, it did work. We went uh, onto iTunes. We were number two within 24 hours. We were number one within three days. And we, we held that for almost two weeks. Um, and, uh, and so people got to see the film on VOD. Do I, you know, wish they'd seen it in the theater? Of course, you know, yeah. but, but at least they saw it and yeah. they continue to see it. Yeah. And as we said, it's hitting DVD and Blu-ray now. So if you're if you're into uh, the whole physical media thing, check it out there. Uh, so I, I you know, it I, I love this conversation because I have no idea really what the finances of VOD and DVD and all that look like. Nobody really does. It's kind of a black box. Um, so it's always very interesting to get uh, kind of a glimpse into that here. And, uh, you know, one of the, one of the things you mentioned is the difficulty in getting attention for a VOD movie. I mean, it, it has a ten tendency to get lost in the, the shuffle, even with something uh, as well cast with like Oscar winners and Oscar nominees, et cetera, et cetera, like this, um, and a timely topic and all that. Uh, but there was another issue, and this is kind of how I came across your radar, I think, uh, the, the, the whole Army Hammer situation. And I don't want to get into all of that, except to ask what it's like to uh, have to, to to be marketing a film when one of your stars, and I think who gives one of, who gives a very, very good performance in this movie, um, is embroiled in a controversy that, that uh, causes a certain number of critics 
and writers to shy away from the project altogether? Well, Stani, you know, it was it, it was pretty frustrating, I have to say. Um, I, you know, I'm a, I'm I'm very much a man of action, uh, and and sub, but sometimes. I've been accused by certain past uh, girlfriends or whatever of not not being emotional enough when it counted. So sometimes I can get paralyzed. Um, and that happened here a bit. I, I, I really didn't know what to make of things. I knew, uh, you know, the stuff started coming out about Army. I just want to be clear. I have no knowledge of anything. Uh, I'm not in touch with him. Uh, I could be completely innocent of anything. It could all be true. I have no idea. Um, the, uh, the person that I knew, you know, was very considerate and hardworking. Um, and I also think did good work in the film. Uh, so, but all this stuff is coming out. Um, and then it's okay. Well, what, I mean, this is, this just gets wilder by the day. Right. And so at first it's sort of innocuous, oh, the cannibal, blah, blah. But then it's, you know, oh, did he, was it an abuse? And so, you know, so I saw, okay, this is taking a darker turn, but what are we going to do? Should we cancel the release? Should we postpone the release? Well, we really can't do that. There's a lot of financial considerations at play here. You owe a bank money who's financed all of these sales, right? So, and we got to just keep moving ahead. There's so much other good work in this movie. You know, so we said, okay, well, hopefully this won't impact reception. But it it did, you know? I mean, it impacted us on many, many, many levels. Um, I, I It continues to impact us. I have... Uh, uh, I can't get too deep into it, but we have a release now. Uh, you know, we have still many, many countries of the world we haven't released. They were going to do a big release there. Now they're not going to do a big release there because of the Army Hammer factor or the press factor or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, that is a shame, you know. Uh, uh, so, you know, uh, it, right or wrong, I mean, it's really just very frustrating. So we had you know, tons of press coverage lined up and the cast here and there. And then it just it just evaporated. You know, it was I, I, I think in, and, and in a way, you know, who can blame them? But but I think some of these organizations, press organizations were concerned and say, oh, well, we just did a great feature on uh, this movie. And we had, you know, Vanity Fair with everybody, you know, pictures, the cast, and Lily Depp. And, you know, and then it's like, Oh, and by the way, now this guy was a serial killer, you know, which was a rumor that was being floated at one yeah. time. They thought he was yeah. a serial killer, which, of course, is insane, um, I think. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, what do you do? So then the cast, you know, they're represented and want them to do stuff. So basically it just all went away. It just it was me going out there and promoting the movie and, 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 you know, a bit of support from the cast on social media, which is the thing they can do by themselves. Right. right. Uh and then, um, so then it was, okay, well, what's the reception of the movie? Um, so I had, you know, one thing I always knew about this movie is I went into a very long editing process in this movie. I think I spent seven, eight, nine months editing it. And I had, you know, I'm a I'm social person, so I'm friendly with a lot of other directors through the Directors Guild and other places. So I had, you know, called all my friends, as I always do. You know, hey, I made a movie, come on over. What do you think? So we got Eli Roth in here. We got Taika Waititi. We got Tony K. Like, you know, whoever it was, I brought him in. I mean, I couldn't get Catherine Bigelow. But, uh, uh, you know, so, so, um, and then at the same time, so we did all these notes and we, Mark Forster, we did it, you know, and then I tested the movie. And I hadn't tested movies before and it tested well. 
And, and I went there and sat there with the audience and participate in the Q and A's, you know, so I knew I was like, okay, this is good. You know, these scores are good. Yeah. Um, so then, you know, then we sent it out for advanced reviews before all the controversy and we got back raves, you know, people gave us advanced quotes to put on the poster. This is timely. It's intense, great performances. And, and, you know, then the thing happened and then, and then I first few reviews came in deadline variety. They were good. I'm like, okay, we're fine. And then just boom, there was this torrent of hatred, you know, true abuse of the movie of me. I don't know. A lot of it was focused on me. Somehow I had, I, I, I don't know what I did to these folks. I, I'm, I'm sorry for whatever I transgressed, uh, you know, but it was confusing as a, as a filmmaker, because you're always trying to say, well, where could I do it better? You know, did I fail? Did I let the people down? It's just really not a good movie. I mean, we had a 24 at one point on Rotten Tomatoes. Now we're in the sixties. Um, but, uh, but, you know, so 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 it was very confusing. And, and I just sort of because as a, I think as an artist, you're always extremely self-critical and you want to, you know, believe, oh, it's all my fault. I just, you know, I screwed everything up. Um, but as I started to read a bunch of the, the hatred ones, right, there are certainly some people who don't like the movie and that's fine. You know, they give it a bad review, whatever. It's not for them. Um, I, I mean, there's a lot of people that liked it, even at this time. But uh but still, you know, as I read, it was very hammer focused, um, you know, it was very hammer focused. And uh, and I, I just didn't think that was fair to the rest of the film, uh, you know, to the uh, to the to the other cast and to, to what we were trying to do, which was to get the word out about a topic that I I thought we did in a decent way. You know, So, yeah. Um, yeah. And 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 it was weird, um, uh, you know, it was weird to see that there was kind of like a, it seemed like a pylon effect to some extent. So I'll just get, I'll read you something. Um, somebody posted a comment somewhere online uh, where they didn't like people had rated the movie high. And they said, wow, it must've been all the people that actually worked on the movie leaving high ratings for this awful stinker. It must be a fake rating system. The movie from beginning to end was dreadful. The acting subpar at best. Army Hammer is one of the worst actors in Hollywood. Army Hammer is not only a woman beater, he's also one of the worst choices to pick for any kind of movie. Basically, I really just hate Army Hammer. Even seeing his stupid name irritates me to no end. Yeah. Yeah. What, how could I have made that movie better for that person? I don't think I could have. You know. So to me, it was that's where the frustration came to say, that's not real. That's not that's not about the movie. You know. And, and then that was when we said, okay, can we, you know, let's get out of this paralysis and let's start just doing more press by whatever means we can, a grassroots approach, you know, reaching people like yourself, reaching, you know, I reached my, you know, uh, other friends and, 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 and critics and film writers and just saying like, can we get a reevaluation of this movie? You don't have to like it. You know, if you don't like it, that's fine. But can we get, can we just, just take a look, you know, without the noise of, you know, cause his thing, when the movie came out, it was literally like he was being tried in the court of media every day. Right. Yeah. So it was perfect storm happening there. And I'm, I'm glad to say, I feel that we've been successful. You know, I think now there've been, you know, 50 or a hundred more journalists have written about it. Um, you know, some really intelligent commentary. There's this one guy I cite all the time that I, he, he made this video that I loved. Uh, Dom Griffin, the armchair auteur, he made a video on YouTube. He posts these incredibly complex, crazy reviews. And he said, it was called What Happens to the Movies When Their Star is Canceled. Um, and it was a review yeah. of Crisis, which he liked, you know, 
but he was like, I like the movie. You know, was it my favorite movie of the year? No, but I do like the film. It's a good film. But let's look at the army of it all. And he got, went deep and deep. And so he's very fun. Check him out. Dom Griffin. Um, and uh, and, well, that's and a, so I don't know. I mean, that's it. That's the dialogue. Yeah. What can you do? I mean, we have to fight for the movie. We believe in this movie. All the cast believed in it. There's a lot of good work in the movie. You know, whether you, th I mean, some people think it's the work of great genius. Others think it's horrible. Whatever it is, it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I know what I'm doing as a filmmaker is pretty good. So, um, you know, but hopefully also it just advances the opioid discussion because that got swept away in COVID and, uh, you know, and that's we're trying to put that back to the forefront, because as you started the program by saying there's still legion deaths, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's crazy. And, and, and the opioid epidemic has only gotten worse during the pandemic. I mean, it's you know, people are at home. People are just getting getting there, uh, getting getting high and dying. And it's bad. Uh, we don't we don't want that. I, I am curious. I just wanted to to ask one more follow-up on the on the review situation so i mean do you do you feel that the the internet has both the the sense i get from from what you said is that the internet has both kind of democratized the review process but also uh made it weirdly more vicious um and more more uh you know kind of focused on whatever whatever thing can be dunked on at any any given moment I look the, the 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 problem to an extent with film criticism as it stands today is you know I love film criticism and I I really like critics and you know like I used to write you know Paul Schrader was a critic before he was a filmmaker um, this you know so there as as was one of the great French auteurs whose name is escaping me at the moment uh, was it Louis Malle or I don't know. Uh, uh, but I've always really enjoyed reading film criticism. I, I, as a kid, I used to get, you know, read David Denby in New York Magazine, you know, and, and think like, oh my God, he's so smart. And, uh, uh, or A.O. Scott, you know, I've enjoyed his writing for a long time. But there was a, a tradition of Pauline Kael and Andrew Saris and these people that really took it seriously. So I w I'm the type of guy, like, I would go and go to the AFI library here in California and go through the stacks and find all the reviews of Robert Towns' movies from Sight and Sound and the mm -hmm. AFI Journal or whatever. You know, I'm a big geek in that way. I think what's happened is, I dare say, tomatoes, you know? I, and I, I want to be careful because I don't want to offend the, <laughs> the, the wrong forces, but... Um, I just think tomato the, the the tomatoization of it all is it fresh is it rotten um, it, it that's all the audience looks at now you know and 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 even the, the providers by putting the score there on the movie in iTunes or whatever right that's sort of like the Roman Colosseum thumbs up thumbs down that Ebert Cicely and Ebert used to do but at least you know Ebert who was one of my my the loves of my life he wrote the introduction to my book I interviewed him from one of my documentaries I thought he was a great man they would do a thumbs up, thumbs down, but they would then do the whole, you know, first they do the whole discourse on the movie for 10 minutes and talk about what they felt about it. The themes give intelligent yeah. analysis. Yeah. So now it's just become, everything's reduced to a score, you know? And, and, and what is that, what does that do to, you know, really kind of deep analysis? I think it's devalued film criticism, you know, and, um, and, and I think it encourages, you know, perhaps some bad instincts. And then now it's become, you know, I have to be honest, I, I, this really troubled me. I caught some plagiarists uh, on this movie mm -hmm. um, uh, for uh, people who went and took other people's reviews 
from tomatoes, copied them, changed around a couple sentences and printed them as their own and then put them on Twitter in order to drive traffic to their site. And I read them and I went, you know, this is the, there's a particular turn of phrase in here. I recognize, uh, and, and I, I mean, what do you do? I mean, I just literally wrote them. I was just like, just take this down. You know, they did. Um, but that's not a good thing. You know, there, there needs to be a little more uh, elegance to this. But I think, I think that's got to come, you know, I don't, I don't know where it comes from. I don't know what the answer is. Mm-hmm. I don't, what do you think? What do you feel? I, I, if I knew how to solve the Rotten Tomatoes problem, I would uh, be, a, be a wealthy man and, a, and an editor somewhere. Uh, of of high prestige. I I I mean the I think you're right though. I do think that the the issue is not so much the uh, thumbs up and thumbs down of it all. I think the I think there's always been an element of service journalism to criticism, so telling people in shorthand this is worth seeing, this is not worth seeing. Um, but I do think the 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 real problem is is when Apple or when Comcast or Amazon or whoever also puts that little fresh or rotten badge up on the on the screen next to the movie, it, 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 it unbalances the whole thing. It turns, it turns criticism into nothing but service. And it, that, that I, I agree with you that it's, it is a, it is a, it's a real problem. And one that critics uh, kind of have to play because if you're, if your stuff's not on Rotten Tomatoes, is it being read, right? That's always the fear. Like if you're not a tomato certified critic, are you a real critic? Does your, does your opinion matter? So, I mean, it's, it is, it is a thing that, that definitely, uh, uh, is, is almost unsolvable. I don't know what the, what the answer is to, is, is the short, my short. I mean, what's interesting is the, um, I, 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 I noticed this the other day, maybe this is obvious, but the, uh, the streamers, do not put ratings for their own product. Oh, really? So if you go on Apple TV and it's an Apple program or Cherry, there's no score. Mm. Uh, if you go on Netflix, there's no score. But if you go on iTunes or Amazon for a VOD rental, there's always a score. Yeah. Yeah, that is interesting. I mean, Amazon or uh, Netflix does the whole, you know, percent match thing, which used to be a thumbs up or thumbs down rating. And they they changed it to how well it matches whatever the algorithm thinks you want to watch, which is which is I don't I don't know that a lot of people realize that that the percent match score is not uh, is not is not the what what people think of the movie. It's what the algorithm thinks you want to watch, um, which is which is kind of interesting. Um well, I, I, we, we've been talking for, for, for 47 minutes now, and I, I just want to ask, uh, I, I always like to ask at the end uh, of these interviews if there was anything I should have asked, if there was anything uh, that, that you would like to talk about um, that you think people should know, either about the movie or the opio- opioid epidemic, if you want to talk about that, whatever. No, I, well, listen, I think, we, I think we've covered, we've really covered the waterfront. I mean, we were really proud of this movie, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a big believer in all's well that ends well, so... You know, I think now the movie's back on the right path, thanks to folks like yourself, thanks to people who gave it another look, you know, and didn't consign it to the uh, to the dustbin of history. I mean, that is an issue with these films. I think we've touched on a lot of really interesting things, which is curation, um, which is, you know, how do we, you know, how do you mount a, a campaign to, to even get people focused on a film? I mean, there's so much attention has just gone away from film generally. Um, 
you know, if it's not a big spectacle movie, um, how do how do these independent movies get attention? But I think you know, I'm always like I said, it was um, it, some so it was a bit paralyzed, but the, you know, where there's a will, there's a way, and now we're back on the right foot, and we're continuing to roll out into all these other countries, um, and so I do think this film. Uh, will find its audience and continue to find its audience over time. And we're, I and the cast are very grateful for that. Um, I, I think um, as far as, you know, what we touched on with financing these films, um, maybe that's a similar thing. You know, I think the audience has to, has to make their desires known somehow, um, you know, that they, if they want to keep seeing uh, thoughtful cinema, drama cinema, thriller cinema, and not just the cinema of effects and spectacle, um, you know, that they've got to advocate for that. They've got to show the, uh, the, the, the money people um, that they'll go for it. Um, yeah. You know, we were lucky they did that on iTunes uh, and, and, and that helped us, um, you know, helped us with everybody else we were dealing with. Um, so we're very thankful for that. Uh, but, but I think I, you know, I don't know. I think it's, you know, that's also where the, the critics role, um, oftentimes was very powerful that they could promote films that you didn't necessarily know about, you know, I mean, that's how we all found Reservoir Dogs, you know, right, remember right. like I read a cry, I saw sure. some critic review and they're like, this movie's crazy. This guy slicing off an ear, you know, I was 12 years old and I was like, okay, <laughs> I got to go sneak into the Angelica to go see dogs. Yeah. Um, and 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 so so there have been you know these these critics that have championed these films that then otherwise would have slipped through the cracks, um, and I think that's the critics' role too. You know, so for if if you know any critics who are listening, it's like you know you're super important. We need you. We need you more than ever. We need you to champion you know things that that have merit and 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 get them to rise above and not just make everything Godzilla versus Kong. You know, Godzilla versus Kong will take care of itself. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know. And, and, and I know there's a tendency to be like, oh, well, I got to get my viewership or my ratings. That's what everyone wants to read about on my channel. And so, yes, okay, yes. But, you know, it's a, well, in the film directing game, the, the, the expression was always one, one for the meal, one for the real, you know. So it was like, okay, well, let's do a Godzilla Kong review for them. But let's also do a review of, you know, pleasure or whatever yeah. weird, cool new indie movies coming that we want to we get everybody to know about. Um, yeah. You know, and thanks for the people who did it for Crisis. We really appreciate it. Uh, well, let's close on this. Uh, Ode to critics. We are the best. It's true. Uh, uh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much for being on the show. Uh, Nicholas Drecki is the writer director of Crisis. Uh, you can find it on BOD, uh, Apple, Amazon, wherever. Out on Blu-ray and DVD now. Uh, check it out. It's it is it is well worth your time. Um, I'm Sonny Bunch, uh, and we will be back next week with another episode of The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. Mm-hmm.